Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I have a guest that hopefully a lot of you actually know, uh, Quinn Hennock, um, who is involved with Juggernaut Training Systems. So hopefully you kind of know them through Mike Isretel, who's kind of a resident, resident on our podcast, really. So um, I first kind of really came into contact with Quinn through an actual consult where he helped me through an injury that really, really helped because I'd seen quite a few different physiotherapists and I tried out what they had given me and not not much of it really helped um, and I was struggling to find someone I trusted. I think a lot of us know there's like personal trainers out there um, who aren't necessarily kind of that great and so we're worried about who we can trust and I think it's nice to have someone like Quinn who is definitely someone um, is evidence-based and has some great experience. So just to introduce him, he's obviously a doctor of physiotherapy um, heads, head of sports prohibit, I can't even say the words, rehab <laughs> is the, the way I always see it, Rehib, I can't even say it. <laughs> Don't hurt yourself, man. I'm going to hurt Re- myself. <laughs> <laughs> Quinn will say it for me. Rehabilitation. There you go, at Juggernaut <laughs> HQ, so Chad Wesley Smith and everyone there. Um, he's also the founder of Clinical Athlete, which is a fantastic resource, and I've also used that and uh, can definitely recommend that. Um, and since 2011 has himself trained exclusively uh, for weightlifting um, and he competed in the 2014 American Open. So he's actually a very good lifter himself and has been involved with loads of different sports throughout your life. Um, and I really like this, which I, I didn't have to dig very hard to find it, but your favorite meal is just any all-you-can-eat buffet, which just yeah. <laughs> tells a lot about a person. <laughs> yeah, I have the metabolism of a hummingbird, so I've got to really pack it in. <laughs> Or else I drop a couple weight classes overnight. Luckily, don't hummingbirds only live for like a couple of months or a year? I'm or hoping so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Short and sweet, baby. That's... Is there anything you want to add to that, Quinn? Or is that a... no? That's that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. I, Steve, I appreciate you having me on. I'm I'm honored. I think it's going to be a fun show. No, definitely. Uh, apart from my kind of where well, you're going to have to say all the words for me because the presenter can't actually speak English. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So guys, I wanted to provide you kind of hopefully a podcast that you could maybe revisit or maybe it's even the first podcast you've listened to where you've kind of heard some kind of really practical take-homes that you can take away with you and use kind of in your everyday life and use within kind of the gym. Nothing very specific to particular injuries or specific to certain things, but something that's just like a good grounding knowledge. Kind of like, okay, you have an understanding for macros, you know you need this much of this. Quinn hopefully can give us kind of an overview of what you can do kind of in your day-to-day to to manage injuries um, and be kind of the most healthy lifter you can all round. Um, So something I wanted to touch on initially was kind of what things could a lifter do before kind of seeking physiotherapy or seeking help when they've got a niggle? What kind of things could they look at to adjust? I know for myself and what we did kind of we looked at training volumes which I don't think a lot of people consider. They just want to do more and more and more and not change their training there. And then also yeah. kind of like slight modifications to techniques. So you can still kind of get a training effect um, if you kind of want to delve into that one, Quinn. Yeah, this is huge. I, I mean, if, if we all as athletes got a little bit better at, at what we're going to discuss here, I, I honestly think I would be out of a job. I, I mean, really, it's it's what you said, you know, the question of how can we work around injuries and how can we train to still get an effect 
but obviously let Mother Nature, you know, do her thing and heal the ailments. You know, we so you don't want to get in her way, and I think that's that's the issue. Um, so it, obviously, it depends on context. You know, it depends on the type of body part we're talking about. It depends on the severity of things. So clearly, but very often, and so there's not an athlete that comes to my door with an injury that we don't talk about their program and their dose. Yeah. Because volume, just from my perspective, volume of training is a dose. It's like medicine. So there's a dose response. And I think what happens is we train, we train hard and we progress and progress and progress. And then we start to, something starts to sensitize or we start to feel pain or, or something goes wrong. And then we think that there's something wrong with us. When in reality, in most cases, you've got to look at the extreme, uh, you know, stressor that you've been putting on your body. That is the thing that we can manipulate. It's a, it's a dose response. And so it's like, I, I have a conversation all the time. Somebody comes in with uh, maybe like knee pain, you know, the anterior knee pain when they're squatting, super common. And I'm like, oh, you know, how long has this been going on? It's like, oh, you know, three or four months. Uh, so I must, you know, I, I think I have tight hips. And I'm like, what, you're like 28 years old, you've been training for 15 years, and you just now started to have in the last four months. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, you've got tight hips. So it's what, and then we start to get into their training. And there's, you know, within the time or around the time that he started, he or she started to have the issue, you know, they started a new squat program, they were doing more volume that they ever, ever had before, or maybe they had taken uh, two months completely off of training for whatever reason, and then try to jump right back in. And in your mind, you think, oh, if I took a long time off, I should be healthy and fresh, you know, I can jump right into things. But it's actually what we're seeing in the literature is it's actually the opposite, mm. where if you take time completely off, you become deconditioned. And so then you have this acute spike in workload that your body's not necessarily prepared for, and we can run into issues there. So this notion of keeping our chronic fitness levels at a baseline to some extent and, and trying to avoid sharp spikes in either direction. Obviously, for performance, you know, we've got a peak, but a, a peak is supposed to be a, a a, a small peak at the end of a cycle, you know, not a big spike. And so that's facet number one. You've got to look at, uh, you got to find your triggers, and and usually it's a volume deal that has sensitized you. Now, sometimes the trigger is either volume in in regards to sets and reps, or sometimes the trigger is uh, intensity as a standalone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we say like maybe again, maybe it's shoulder pain with with bench. Uh, overhead pressing bench press or it's it's low back or hip issues with deadlift doesn't matter if what I always ask is like okay you feel these symptoms do you have them at rest if the answer is no then I have to we have to dive into what what's your threshold where is your trigger you know a lot of people will say oh my anterior knee pain when I until I get to 85 percent of my one rep max well we got a lot of volume or we got a lot of, of intensity below that that we can get a training effect. And so the idea is then, all right, 85% your sensitizing threshold for whatever reason, your load tolerance, you know, is, is not tolerant to mm -hmm. that. And so let's back it off five or 10% and get our volume there. And this is where we can, you know, very simply just do lighter loads with more volume or incorporate things like tempo because maybe sometimes your, your threshold is lower, you know, sometimes it's 60 or 70% that's, your tipping point and you start to feel issues and you know 50% is all you can work with that's pretty light but three to five second you know tempo in both directions can make that pretty hard you still get some mm -hmm. some time under the bar you, you, know, you can elicit a training effect maybe not ideal but it's certainly better than nothing so find your trigger is it is it just volume or maybe on the, on the end of volume 
you don't get your anterior knee pain until your fifth set of eight. It, but, you know, the first three sets of eight are pain-free, feel fantastic. The first half of the fourth set is pain-free, and it starts to come on in the fourth set, and then the entire fifth set is, is painful. But you found your threshold is at three sets of eight. And so, you know, in a microcosm, Mike Isretel talks about maximum recoverable volume mm-hmm. a lot, and that's usually over the course of, uh, you know, entire cycles. But you can think of it in, in small doses in a rehab scenario too. In that case, three sets of eight was my max you know, yeah. volume or my max threshold. And then if you surpass that, then you sensitize the issue again. It's trial and error a little bit. So you're going to run in, you know, you're going to kind of have to figure that out over the course of several sessions. But the idea is you want to stick within your threshold, but just short of it. And then what you'll find is that mother nature will put the pieces back together and your sensitivity, pain sensitivity will slowly decrease. Your threshold will slowly rise. It's it's just a, a process. It's a tedious mm-hmm. process, and you have to be patient. So that's number one, modulating your training load. You got to look at it as a as a dose response. Um, now, some people will say, "Well, I've had the same pain for you know years, five, ten years, and it hasn't gone away. It doesn't matter what I do." Well, all acute pain started as, or all chronic pain started as acute pain. Mm-hmm. You had it that first time. Right, you know what I mean? It didn't yeah. just all of a sudden, it's been 10 years and you you blacked out. So, it, it, you know, it happened that first time and there was a trigger that first time. We At this point, we don't know what it is. You know, I'm, I'm talking theoretical case mm-hmm. of somebody with, with back pain when they deadlift for the last 10 years or something like that. There was a trigger at that first point and it was probably a dose response. And then what happens is that we don't quite let things calm down or we don't modulate volume and we, we uh, hammer it again. And we hammer it again. Or maybe the pain's just not as high. It's not very high. And so you just keep pushing through. And the way that our bodies work, if you keep sensitizing the very same thing, the threshold for that desensitization starts to increase. It starts to take longer and longer for your body to forget about that and become your norm. And your threshold, so maybe it was 80%, that was your threshold, but you kept... You kept poking at it, right? You kept yeah. hammering that 80% or, or higher. Now it's 70%. Now it's 60%. Cool. Now you're feeling it. Yeah. So it's it, – it, there's always a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, now with chronic pain, there's psychosocial factors that, you know, we can't even get into because the complexity of pain and, and pain science is beyond uh, – you know, it, it takes years and years to just kind of wrap your mind around that. So there's always a psychosocial factor when we're talking about this. We're still human. We're not robots. But chronic pain, acute pain doesn't matter. You may have varying degrees of uh, sensitivity threshold, but the dose response, the principles of dose response are still the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you've got to look at that. Now, as far as positional tweaks, this is big. I I think, you know, smart programming is always a constant. We're always trying to strive for that. But we can manipulate body position to distribute forces in a different way and change your movement patterns, maybe just temporarily, that can also alter your symptoms. So I'll, I'll take uh, the, like your hip, for example. Some people feel a pinching sensation in the front of their hip when they squat, you know, at the yeah. bottom of the squat. And again, you know, usually that's coupled with, with you, just, you just hammer that joint a little bit too hard, too fast, too much volume. This wasn't a problem, you know, last month. All of a sudden it's a problem now. It's not your body's fine. It's, your body's the same now as it was a month ago. Your training changed. Mm-hmm. So that's always number one. We've hammered that. But with the hip, for example, we know that, pelvic tilt can affect the mechanics of the hip joint. And so there's a 
uh, 3D analysis or uh, uh, yeah, so some type of uh, imaging study in 2014 where they looked at pelvic tilt and for every uh, 10 degrees of anterior pelvic tilt, mm-hmm. you lose five degrees of end range hip flexion. That's, it's not good or bad. It just means that the harder that you arch, the less uh, deep hip flexion you have at the very end range. You just lose a little bit of depth. For most, some some people's hips are oriented in a way that it doesn't matter. They can just bury their squat regardless. But for a lot of us, pelvic tilt has a bearing, and so that's why you know for a powerlifter, a hard arch may be beneficial because you're cutting your depth off to the standard. There's yeah. no need to bury the squat in powerlifting. In weightlifting, theoretically, the lower you you receive the bar, the more weight you can lift. So maybe it is a little bit more important. Uh, but going back to the pain example, if if you hard arch that joint space closes faster. It closes a little bit more prematurely. So you're gonna get some sensitization, maybe some impingement just means that things are coming together, but you're gonna impinge the joint sooner than let's say we pulled that pelvis underneath you a little bit, so still still anterior tilted, but just less so. You create a little bit more space and now you have a little bit more hip flexion at your end range and maybe the the tissues don't run into each other as soon or with as much force. So that's one way that we can modulate, uh, you know, pain symptoms in the one example, manipulating pelvic tilt. So we practice in different positions, you know, I'll cue them to literally arch hard, you know, hard anterior pelvic tilt. How does that feel? Um, let's go like a little bit more pooping dog. So probably even more posterior tilt than they would normally like with a kettlebell or something like a goblet squat or something that they're not, you know, we're not worried about an injury or anything like that and then see how that feels. And that's try to find somewhere in the middle where you feel both strong and, uh, you know, you feel less symptoms in the front of your Mm -hmm. hip. So that may be a temporary strategy. Usually what I tell people is we're changing your movement for the, for right now to try to desensitize you. Yeah. To try to, you know, again, more reps that you feel your issues, the longer it's going to occur. So, But we still want to train. So we're, we're altering your mechanics for now, and then we're hoping that Mother Nature and our adjustments in your training desensitize, desensitize things over time, and then you can go back to your whatever position that you feel is the strongest. Mm-hmm. And this is just kind of a temporary fix. Some people feel like their new found uh, positions are actually better in the long run just across the board. So that's, you know, we had that conversation too. Mm-hmm. For the knee, you know, knee pain with squatting, we can we can manipulate uh, shin angle, so forward you know driving your knees forward versus trying to keep a little bit more of a vertical shin. I actually see it go both ways. Uh, intuitively, you would think a more vertical shin is less pressure on the knee, but yeah. honestly, I think the the more I learn about the body, the more or in the brain and perception, the less I know about this, mm-hmm. the more confused I get. And I honestly, I think sometimes it's all about just giving your your nervous system a different input if it's you know, for the knee, whether it's more forward than you would normally do or further, you know, more vertical shin than you would normally do, it's a different yeah. sensory input and it changes things. So I, honestly, I've seen it go both ways. Uh, so squatting, we manipulate shin angle one way or another to see if we can uh, change symptoms for the better. Stance, toes in versus toes out. You know, we're playing with different stances to see if we can change symptoms, maybe temporarily again, but you can still get some work done. Yeah. Range of motion, depth, obviously, if you tell me that your knee only hurts at the very, very bottom of your squat, try to cut your depth off just short of that position. Yeah. Get as, Basically, get as strong as you can in the pain-free range. Um, tempo was another one. You know, If it's intensity-driven, then slowing down, cutting your depth off, you can control things a little bit better. So 
you know, you've got you've got a lot of options. Sometimes it's the variation of the movement itself. Back squat may be your trigger for whatever reason, mm-hmm. but a safety squat bar feels really good. Uh, it could be, you know, front squat your trigger, but a back squat feels really good. So we'll train back squat and we'll reintroduce front squats slowly. Just find, I guess the, the point is find a variation, find the next most difficult variation that you can train and then load it to your, to your tolerance yes. and change variables like, like tempo perhaps to make things a little bit tougher. It's the same with the bench press, you know, um, if it's, if your competition grip is giving you some issues somewhere, think before you start thinking about all the minutia of what could be wrong with your shoulder, just see if you can change your grip width mm-hmm. or your elbow angle or where you touch and see if that's a, you know, has any bearing on your symptoms. Maybe you're doing board presses for a little bit because you only feel the symptoms at the very, very bottom. But if you do a, you know, a two inch board or, you know, you may be a one inch board, you're okay. Boom. It's not ideal. You know, it's not going to be the best for peaking for a meet, but it's, it's way better than taking time completely off. Yeah. Because again, going back to what we said, that's what I see. Honestly, that's the, probably the biggest mistake that people make is they have one little thing and then they get scared, which I understand. I get it. I was, I've been there. And then they, they're like, ah, you know, well, I took two months off because I just didn't want to make it worse. And, and sometimes that's better than like continuing to jackhammer mm-hmm. it. So, I, you know, if I'm going to pick the lesser of two evils, <laughs> take time off. But, but then you've got to be very uh, cognizant of going back in slowly. You, you can't, in many cases, you can't just pick up where you left off. Yeah. Because just because the pain is gone, the sensitivity is gone, and you're kind of back to a baseline, doesn't mean that the tissues are strong. And they most likely they've actually lost a bit of fitness because you're detrained. Mm-hmm. So you've really got to be slow and ramp things up uh, gradually when you've taken time completely off. And you know, I, this is always with a caveat of go see somebody if you're not sure. I'm a physical therapist, so if like if nobody came in to saw me to see me, you know, I would, I would be in a, it'd be a problem. But yeah. if you're not if you're not sure and you just want some peace of mind that nothing serious is you know, going on. Yeah. Go see somebody and rule that stuff out. But ultimately the coach and the athlete can head the quote unquote rehab. If it's, if it's nothing serious, you know, and that can just be training modifications and different positional cues for the deadlift. You know, if it's back pain during deadlifting, obviously a variation could be sumo versus conventional. That's pretty intuitive. I found for a lot of people, they like, yeah, you know, conventional hurts. So I started pulling sumo and at least I can do that. So it's like, that's good. Um, but at some point, you know, if your goal is to compete and your conventional is typically better, our goal, definitely goal is the conventional and just daily life. Like you're not going to do a sumo deadlift every time you need to pick up your pen or something yeah. like that. So uh, rack pulls, I, you know, I found to be an awesome variation, obviously, from the blocks, because let's say it's from the floor that you feel your issues. Uh, then we can pull, you know, pull from the pins at the, when the bar is above the knee, you know, take take the knee out of the equation completely. Uh, then slowly start to lower the bar back to the floor. Again, staying within the intensity and volume ranges that you can tolerate. We can make light deadlifts hard by going tempo in both directions. Mm-hmm. So you can really feel your muscles, but not necessarily your your pain, you know, the, the discomfort. Um, if it's at lockout, you know, sometimes we'll have a conversation if maybe you're doing a little bit too much of a lean back and you've yeah. sensitized yourself to, you know, extension. So that's kind of an easy fix, you know, stack yourself a little bit more vertically, uh, but we'll we'll also do something like that's called a halting deadlift in the sport of weightlifting, or some people refer to it as a liftoff, where you pull from the ground, 
and you pull you pull all the way up to about the knee or even mid thigh without bringing your torso vertical and bringing your yeah. hips through. So it's yeah, so it's everything but the extension. It's basically everything but the painful position. But at least we're getting some pull from the floor. So we're getting that strength and then we're likely working on something on the back end to desensitize your hip extension. So like maybe some uh, weighted slow glute bridges or barbell hip thrusts to just feel that hip extension without you know, recreating your symptoms and then we'll, we'll hopefully bring the two together as soon as possible. But um, yeah, it's uh, arching versus trying to keep a, a little bit less of an arch with the spine in either direction. You know, if you're flexion intolerant, it hurts to forward bend. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to cue you to be in a little bit more of an exaggerated extension position. If you're sensitive to extension, I'll try to cue you to be a little bit flatter, not not rounded, but just a little bit flatter, less extension. And so it just depends on context, but try to manipulate a positional variable and a variation uh, to, to see if you can get a training effect. And some, you know, the question I get from there is, well, how do I know just because it doesn't hurt right now, how do I know that I'm not doing damage? And that's, that's yeah. I mean, it's a question. Um, usually the symptoms in, in most cases with sports injuries, the symptoms are consistent enough with pain. You know, it's like I feel my symptoms in a certain position, in a certain exercise. You know, it's, it's there's some pattern there. Yeah. So if you if you don't feel your familiar symptoms during the exercise that evening, or the next day, wasn't it? It didn't exacerbate anything. You're, you're probably in the clear. You're, you you probably were within your threshold. Cool. Um, so that's that's a ideal. That's not, it doesn't work like that, right? Sometimes it feels good during, and then you start to tighten up that night. In the tendinopathy literature, so like um, patellar tendinopathy, when we can actually see degenerative changes in the tendon, yeah. they actually say that re creating some pain is actually uh, necessary in the rehab process because you've got to do something that's hard enough. To cause an adaptation, yeah. and if so, in the tendinopathy literature, they say if you're if you feel an exacerbation, that's okay. If it's back to a baseline after 48 hours, then we're good. We can't necessarily extrapolate that to all pain uh, or or you know injuries, but in general, I say you know within that 24 to 48 hour window, if you had a small exacerbation in your symptoms, but it's back now, it's back down to a baseline a day or two later, it's we're okay. We can dose it cool. again. That's, that was a lot, so I'll stop there. <laughs> no, yeah, it was it was a lot, and you touched on so many good points. There were so many things. I mean, the listeners, if they're anything like me, were listening to that and being like nodding along, like, "Yep, yeah, that sounds like me," and they're and then probably thinking, "Why have I not tried any of this?" And I think something you actually touched on that I think a lot of people experience is they get kind of that niggle. They don't kind of change things up, or maybe they they kind of push it too far, and then they have to take time off. And then because they've yeah. had that time off. They then go back but like you said they don't accumulate it kind of slowly like we're talking about like you talked about mrv and we know like the volume landmarks we try and move between these they just go like straight to their previous old self and then they end up re-injuring the same part and they keep going through this like cycle and it's kind of never ending but yeah you touched on i think like you said first of all it comes down to programming so you need to have like you need to have your light days, your rest days, your deloads. Those are all important. You have to have the right amount of volume overall. But then past that, it's kind of, yeah, just slight modifications. Like you said, tempo, intensity, variations, small little tweaks. 
Um, so no, I thought that was fantastic. And I think a lot of people can take that away and kind of use it for themselves because I know for myself, like I, I've had knee issues now and then when I get into deep knee flexion and it's like, right, if I go to leg press, I don't get any symptoms. I can still get a training response from leg press. I'll go back to those other movements when I don't get that pain. Um, and also you, it was important you talked about, I think you might've used the analogy before in that if you do have something that's painful, I remember you talked about it with me and like, don't keep poking the bear. It's kind of like a hot engine. And I think you've used the analogy a hot engine and like you have to let the engine cool off before you can work on it as a mechanic. You can't kind of, your body can't work on things as it's really overheated. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It starts to mess with your mind too. You made the example of you take a little bit of time off, you take enough time off to where things feel a little bit better and maybe not even all the way better, you know, as as athletes, yeah. as soon as the pain is manageable, we're, we're back, you know what I mean? And then, but then you sensitize it again. And it, it, it's faster this time because your threshold is lower. Then you do it again and again and again. And then several months have gone by and you're like, shit, this is just going to be my life. Yeah. This is, you know, this is who I am now. I'm never going to get better. And you start thinking like, what's wrong with me? Is it, you know, am I just dysfunctional? This, that, is this muscle not firing? Am I, you know, we start playing these narratives, but it, it really came down to the principle of you just weren't patient enough. Um, and we, I, I think we can all attest to it. We can think back or something that's like, yeah. You know, that that's what I did. And so a lot of times, I'll be honest, you know, a lot of the cases that come in my office door, we're really just having a conversation about this stuff. And I'm we're sh reshifting the, the narrative a little bit and reshaping yeah. the expectations and the perception of the case, because that's that's it's so important that people have the correct context to their situation or else it's almost impossible because there's so much information on the I mean, Google knee pain with squatting and and in one day try to you know tally up all the different recommendations you get mm -hmm. and just hundreds and hundreds it's this it's that you know and so it's so hard and that's why in my practice I, I've simplified things down to my tiers of volume and positional uh, cueing yeah. because it's just so hard to to try to figure out the minutia and we don't have very good tests for it. And it's, you know, one guru says this is the end all be all and the other one says this and um, it's just not very scientific. But but this is the problem is it's not quick yeah. necessarily. Sometimes it is, you know, so if, if it's not severe, you know, sometimes it's just a week or two of modifications, then you're back and, and rolling again. But um, it just takes a little bit of, of uh, work on the athletes part too, you know, the little discipline. Mm -hmm. But it's. It's just so so effective. We just have we just had such good luck. Um, it's it's a terrible business model from my perspective because people <laughs> just go out, you know, like I'll in, in one visit, you know, we'll have this conversation. We'll say, all right, no, this is the programming modifications. Here's a couple of positional cues. My third tier that we haven't talked about is local tissue. It just depends on the injury. Okay. So if it's a ten, if it's a tendinopathy anterior, you know, a true tendinopathy that we could diagnose via MRI, and that doesn't equal pain, by the way. I could. You know, people without knee pain in their entire life could have a tendinopathy on imaging and never be sensitized. That's the shit that we just don't understand. But uh, let's say it is reactive tendinopathy. And we know, based on the literature, different loading strategies can help to strengthen the tendon. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, mod uh, training modification is always tier number one. We've talked about that. Positional modifications, positional cueing, experimentation, variations, 
talked about that as tier number two. And then my usually my third tier, if it's appropriate, is local tissue specific exercise for the local tissue. For a knee tendinopathy, it's maybe some, you know, more isolated quad, some tempo uh, stuff for the quad, like some um, tempoed split squats or some uh, very heavy, heavily resisted with a band, very thick band, terminal knee extension exercises where we're going very slow in both directions. And the literature is terming that heavy, slow resistance. So we're actually getting away from just eccentrics. Got you. And it's slow in both directions. It doesn't matter, actually. It's just that time. It's just the force production. Uh, the tendon to, to be able that slow contract relax is really makes those tissues robust and it gives you a break from the fast explosive pounding that the, that the connective tissue takes and with our normal training uh, or you know with that patellar example even open chain stuff like iso leg extensions for some for some quad burns for some analgesic depending on how reactive sometimes you just can't do anything sometimes with a you know, with something like that, you can't even do a body weight squat. Mm -hmm. You're like, shit, you know, I got no threshold here. Well, that's where that lower level stuff comes in. There's probably some angle on the leg extension that you can hold for 45 seconds that'll make your quad burn like hell and won't hurt your knee. And that's where we start. So, But that would be tier three. Yes. Because it's lower level, it's more specific, it's usually less load, less, you know, less stress. Less stress equals less adaptation. So we make sure that the top tiers are in order first and then we're down you know to that specific level but that's where that and i think that's where maybe uh, physio is uh the, the stereotypes come from because we stay a lot of us uh, from a physical therapy pers perspective we start at tier three right and stay there yeah and they don't a lot of them don't understand the rest of them so that's why they don't ever go there um but you only going to get an effect from those low level things for so long and eventually your body acclimates very quickly and the, the effects become negligible and you've got to move on or, and that's where people stagnate. Mm -hmm. I guess that to me sounds kind of like all the, the, the first tiers you're talking about, like programming, slight adjustments sound like, I don't know, like just if you're out and about and that's just taking care, walking rather than like not taking care and always relying on kind of falling over and getting a plaster and putting that plaster on you keep relying on that plaster rather than just taking care walking down the street kind of sounds like the same sort of thing like take care of your programming make slight adjustments rather than always i think people use kind of these kind of whatever it might be foam rolling stretching these kind of modalities as kind of they hope it's going to be like that plaster and it's going to allow them to heal up when in reality it doesn't always really work yeah and that's that's frustrating too because you do. You try different things. Sometimes it gets expensive too. You know, you see this this practitioner who specializes in this treatment, or this one who specializes in this treatment, and then you bought this fifty dollar foam roller that's supposed to be the new biggest <laughs> thing. You know, and then like the fifty dollar softball looking thing, or like it's it's just like endless uh, short. Uh, honestly, just short term, probably when we get right down to it, more placebo based yeah. interventions that are not gonna have a, a long-term physiological effect. Mm -hmm. and, um, but in the meantime, you're, you haven't addressed these other factors, and so you're, you're further down the rabbit hole. You know, it's just this vicious cycle. Completely, I think yeah. there's so many lifters within that kind of, in that zone, and actually that brings us nicely to the second topic, in that kind of, as a general lifter, if you are healthy, with these things like just general mobility, tissue health, 
how much attention do we need to play to kind of like foam rolling, stretching, sports massage? Should we be booking a sports massage every month? Should we be foam rolling like half an hour every day or stretching? Because I think a lot of yeah. people think this is like, these are good things to be doing, but I think people just think that they don't really know whether it is something that would be beneficial to them. It's a big topic, man. And uh, it's usually, you know, I, I try to be delicate here because <laughs> Some people, well, and it's like some some people spend their training, their livelihood, and their careers to learn certain things. Here's a, you know, and so I'll, I'll start at the mechanism of of how this stuff works. That's what we're still not even clear on. Yeah. And so I'm I'm always, you know, I'll get flack for this too, but I'm honestly going to lump manual soft tissue work from a provider and things like foam rolling in the same bucket, because when you get right down to it, the mechanisms should be the same. Pressure from my hand should be no different than pressure from the roller from a from a physical standpoint. So, you know, I'm I'm just gonna we're gonna talk about those things um, now. I understand that the hands can be a little bit more specific in in different areas, but tissue response should be the same. Yeah, we don't know. What we do know is that foam, like I said, foam rolling or or massage or stretching can provide short term changes in uh, range of motion. Short-term changes in uh, pinpoint threshold or pain threshold. So if you poke somebody and then they rate their pain and then they foam roll and you poke them again, they rate less pain. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the same with massage. It's, I think it's a desensitization. You're just desensitizing for a short term, like a mm -hmm. sensory input. It would be like if I jammed my finger with a basketball or something and I shake it. Like, yeah. ah, shit, you know, I'm trying to send a different sensory input to override the pain. What if you knock your knee against the table and you rub it intuitively, yeah. you just do that. It's the same mechanism. Uh, so it's for right right now, the way that we understand this stuff is it's some type of sensory input that changes your perception for the short term. Yeah, it's some people have now termed this and it, the literature has been using this, too, as a neurophysiological effect. And then that's how they will um, – that's how they'll kind of spin the narrative and say, well, well I'm providing you a, phys a neurophysiological effect you know, with, this, with this treatment or with this tool. That's, that sounds great. Yeah. It's a fancy word. Don't get me wrong. And, I, and I, there's plausibility there. But we don't – pass that. We don't know anything. So it's like what neurophysiological effect? Yeah. That's just like saying you know, this strength training has, has a neuro – that's a neurophysiological effect right there. I, me speaking to you, it, you're having a neurophysiological <laughs> effect in your brain. So it's like, what does that mean? That's what we don't know. And, and so when we start to really t talk about these things, neurophysiological effect and placebo start to look a whole yeah. lot more similar. And that's what we can't differentiate. Placebo is inherent in everything. There's placebo with exercise too. It's like, oh, you see that? It feels good, right? It's a good exercise. Yeah, this one really burns. It must yeah. be doing something. That's placebo. But we want to maximize placebo in all situations. But to but for that to be your only fallback, that's where that's where the problem lies, mm -hmm. and that's where we just can't we just don't know. So we know it provides some type of, of short term effect. I'm always I always argue though, if that provides a short term effect, but getting on the exercise bike for five minutes before a workout, which has been shown to also provide short term ranges of motion improvements and uh, changes in perception, why would you pick the passive? modality versus the active modality or if you just did so i'm going to get back to your question 
<laughs> which is your original question. I remember what it was. But if, if let's say your warm up is like 20 minutes of foam rolling and passive stretching. What if you took that 20 minutes and did more of the movement pattern that you're trying to train? What if you did 20 minutes more of squatting, yeah. light squats? We all know that first time you walk in the gym, that first squat's going to feel like shit. That first set is going to feel like shit. Your knees are going to pop. And that's where usually when people freak out, they're like, oh my God, I need to warm up. And they go do a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Just keep, just no, just keep doing the movement. It'll, you, you, you know, when you warm up and you feel that shift, it's like, okay, I'm ready now. Yeah. All of a sudden, your body just kind of turns it on like you feel good. That I promise that will happen if you just keep doing the movement. All of a sudden, there'll be a set where it like, all right, it just gelled. You're warmed up. It's the how it works. But the benefit of doing that is that you've practiced the movement now. It's just like shooting a free throw. The more reps you get in of a, of a skilled movement, the more grooved that pattern is going to be. So it's, it's beneficial that way. For healthy athletes – but I think it's beneficial to be able to turn your brain off and relax. You know, people people talk about that kind of like being able to shift back into the parasympathetic state. Yeah. Again, I don't really know what that means. But I think just being able to turn down a little bit after training and allow your body to uh, start the regeneration process. You're not amped up all the time. I think that's I think that's important. Um, anecdotally, I think it's important. There's some that it's hard to measure that stuff. Yeah. But there is starting to be some data to come out to just saying being being able to relax a little bit. I mean, there's actually some good evidence on, on meditation. And I don't I don't think it matters what the type of meditation is. I just think it's just being quiet. And, yeah. You know, so back to massage. I think that's a benefit of a massage laying on the table and just doing nothing and trying to turn your turn your brain off and letting somebody else do something for you. Cool. You know, there's something you know, I, I think there's something to that. Um, that's a different narrative, though. Yeah. The narrative of I'm breaking up the scar tissue that you just accumulated. Good luck. I hope we're not that fragile. Um, and the, and the, uh, we're not. The evidence is, is, has refuted that type of notion. Like we can we can just rearrange your collagen somehow the, exactly the way that we want to with these implements. Um, it's shown that the amount of forces that that would take or you would we would just have to rip through the flesh. And um, so it's just not it's that's not plausible. Yeah. But I do think there's something to the relaxation standpoint. Um, they have shown that foam rolling uh, potentially reduces DOMS. So you have a real sort. They they did made people do the like ten times ten RDLs. Oh, it was real gnarly protocol. Yeah, and so they got real sore and they foam rolled several times. So it wasn't super controlled. Like we would need more of these okay. studies to, to pinpoint. But the you know there was a control group no foam rolling. The the experimental group foam rolled. At right after the training, I think a 24-hour, maybe 24-hour period and a 48-hour period, and then and re-measured perceived soreness, 24, 48, and 72, or something like that. And at 72 hours, both groups were the, back to a baseline. But at that 24 to 48 hours, the foam rolling group had less perceived soreness. And and anecdotally, I can attest to that. You know, if I'm if my legs are sore as hell and I get on the foam roller, it's god awful in the moment. Yeah. But when you stand up you get that short term desensitization Completely. it's just, it's you know but the short term is the is the key word there so i think as long as people i don't prescribe it and i don't show people how to use it cuz that's not rocket science but i say you know if you want that effect go for it and i just make sure that i educate them on what's actually going on and then it's Perfect. their choice you know just don't become reliant yeah. on don't think that that is going to be the ticket to the to the podium man you know or that's going to be the rehab uh, uh te technique that's going to really get you back from this injury because it's just not 
I've um I've definitely seen people like travel with their their foam roller, so like yeah. they have to have it, and it can become a crutch. But yeah, I can completely relate to what you were saying there in terms of whenever I've used a foam roller, it's like oh my back feels a bit tight. I'll foam I'll go on there, and it kind of loosens it up short term. For sure. Um, or even like heat therapy, so like those muscle kind of yeah. um kind of rubs that you put onto your body. It's basically just taking a different sensation, and it takes away the pain because your body's focusing on the heat. I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. And so any one of those things, like people ask me about that stuff all the time. And I'm just like, what did I, what did I say about this one? It's the same, same answer. Uh, because we don't know the differentiation yet. It's like medications. Medications here, at least here in the US, uh, they have to go through placebo controlled trials. Right. And, and we know the, effic the efficacy, meaning we know actually exactly what it does in the most extremely controlled environment. We give it every opportunity to do something physiologically. What does it do? We know this medication binds to this receptor and changes this hormone profile, blah, blah, blah. We know this one does this neurotransmitter, boom. So we know exactly what things do, and then we apply them to the real world to see if they're effective yeah. at, at, you know, so like a blood pressure medication. This blood pressure medication actually lowers blood pressure because it binds to this receptor, blah, blah, blah. We see that. Okay, now we've got to give it to these people to see if less people die from heart disease or mm -hmm. high blood pressure, if it, if it doesn't affect, if it's not effective in the real world, that it's got no external validity and so we yeah. throw it out just because it was efficacious. But we want both. With things like foam rolling and a lot of the inter interventions in my field, we go with the effectiveness first. So does this provide a, a range of motion or a change in perception? Yes. What does it do? I don't know. It's, what's the efficacy? No yeah. idea. And that's where it becomes difficult to prescribe one thing over the other because we don't know what any of them do. And they could all be doing the same, going through the same pathway. Mm -hmm. So heat, same example. If you prefer heat because it's easier, go for it. If you have a relationship with the foam roller and you just feel like it's better, you, you like that better, go for that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just the kind of the same um, recommendation. is like don't become reliant and minimum effective dose. If... 20 seconds of foam rolling in one area gets you that loosened up feeling and like makes that change. 20 seconds is all you need. 20, you know, a minute is not going to be three times better. Mm -hmm. Cool. No, and I think, yeah. I think the actual, and some people might think, oh, but I've been doing, when I started doing this routine before bed, foam rolling for 10 minutes and then going to bed, like things were better. Surely that means it's helping. But to me, that sounds very much like your sports massage where people are relaxing and kind of doing some foam rolling before bed it's like a like self massage in a, in a sense you're not looking at this well maybe you're looking at the tv but you're at least relaxed because you're just going over the foam roller so i guess it's kind of people are relating the benefit to the wrong kind of thing like you said i think so too i i, I think there's some stuff to that for sure and uh like ramwad or yoga or stretching they'll ask me that same thing it's like what do you think about these things and we'll talk about what you know the mechanisms what they do um but we'll say like before bed as just a way to wind down yeah. And yeah, you get that like you get that change in perception right before you go to sleep. It's a nice way to like end the day. And so you end it on a positive note. You wake up and it's you remember the last thing you remember is feeling good, you know. And yeah. so I think there's something to that. I really, really do. And I and that I don't know what the benefit is or the dose, but I would recommend that so much more than I would recommend that long bout before yeah. training just from a time. It's just not conducive to to time mm -hmm. and you're sacrificing the time that you could be spending, you know, getting a stressor in the gym and doing something that's actually going to elicit an adaptation. 
And then all that other stuff, if you got time, can be after training. It can, you know, on your off days, that type of deal. So yeah, perfect. Um, good. Yeah, and that kind of leads us actually into a good position right now in that kind of. As a lifter, how flexible or mobile do we need to be? Do we need to be kind of always trying to improve our mobility? Is flexibility and more mobility always better? Um, I think a lot of people think it is and kind of more is better. What are your thoughts on that? The, it's a really good question. There are a couple things there. A couple principles, actually. Stretching or uh, flexibility is the excursion of range of motion you know, in different uh, positions, different contexts, as a standalone attribute is not a protective mechanism. Does uh, being more flexible, having more ex range of motion excursion mm -hmm. does not protect you from injury, doesn't reduce your risk. They're, they've they've looked at that. They've tried to look at that because you're right. This has been a thing. Oh, you just flexibility, flexibility, more flexible, the better. Like you're more athletic, you're safer. Uh, and it's just it's just not it's just mm -hmm. not shown to be. Um, and think about it. I mean, if you all of a sudden you do the stretching routine and you now have uh, 20 more degrees of hamstring length in in a month, did you do anything to not, to gain strength in that tw new 20 degrees? Like, are your tissue, are your connective tissues adapted mm -hmm. to uh, absorbing force in that new 20 degrees? Probably not. So I would even argue that just arbitrarily creating new ranges of motion may actually set you up for something. Because you've got to make those tissues adapt. Yeah. But but as a standalone attribute, it has not shown to be a protective. From a performance perspective, you need to have the range of motion that of enough range of motion for the movement. So that that's not necessarily saying that you're setting yourself up for injury. But if your squat, if your hips don't allow you to hit parallel, or you're you want to be a weightlifter and you want to put a barbell over your head, but your shoulder joint doesn't stops you know it stops here then you need more range of motion mm -hmm. some people would term that mobility to for the desired task where that's not an injury standpoint that's just from a performance standpoint yeah. your joints need to be able to go into the position and needing extra range of motion to as sometime like so, or somehow giving you a buffer zone i think there's diminishing returns there yeah. and i think when you start to try when you start to have to spend the time to get that extra range of motion, that's when we again you're sacrificing time that you could be spending. You've got you've got the positions now. Get train them and get strong. Create attributes like strength and power that are going to be better for your sport. Um, yeah, yeah. So for a powerlifter, you don't have to be a ballerina. You know, the there's actually the mobility requirements are not that high. Um, if somebody can, if somebody can do an RDL. You know, talking deadlifts with an empty with an empty bar with light you know, 135, 60 yeah. kilos or whatever to the knee or just above the knee, they've probably got enough hamstring length, just fine. Because you're that's at the point of a deadlift when the bar is right at your kneecap is probably where the posterior chain is most lengthened and stressed because your knee is almost extended but you're still folded over. Mm -hmm. So, but if you've got that with light loads, then you've got the flexibility for yeah. a deadlift. If it doesn't feel comfortable then with heavy weights, well, you're just not strong enough. That has nothing to do with flexibility. For a weightlifter, to talk snatch, because that's generally the, the movement that people have trouble with from a positioning standpoint. Cool. If, you know, stay on the table, lay, you know, laying on, on the table on your back, if your shoulders go over your head, you know, both shoulders, I take them, boom, boom, good. So they, they, your shoulders are good. Then I take your hips, 
and I move them all around, you know, past what a squat would be. There's your hip. It's moving great, you know, both sides. And ankles, fine, you know, no history of ankle sprains or anything like that. And then when you stand up, your overhead squat looks like you're a baby giraffe. <laughs> that has nothing to do with your flexibility. Your joints all go there. Yeah. It's some type of motor patterning thing that we need to work on that takes coaching and you know different variations, that type of thing. That's a different conversation. But you only need a, as much flexibility as the movement requires. Perfect. And then you get strong within that range of motion. That doesn't mean that if if my shoulder goes just over my head and I'm fighting for it, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy to do it with load. Like it's going to take some work. But just – but sacrificing the work for just like trying to crank on your joints for this magic fix uh it's just not beneficial it's not it's not effective it doesn't yeah. seem to be effective so uh flexibility is a standalone to summarize is not is not protective now are you a gymnast are you a dancer uh you know these these types of sports and professions need extreme amounts of ranges yeah. of motion but if you watch these people they've adapted over years this is not a overnight thing they're also strong in these positions i mean mm -hmm. look at gymnasts can hold actively yeah. hold those positions they can do the splits holding their legs in the air with their leg muscles not just their body you know what i mean yeah. so it's we're, we're sometimes we ignore the, that facet of things so they've created strength and uh, flexibility you know within these ranges of motion so that's where some of the stuff people ask me about different courses and um, I'm, I, I'm always reticent to recommend you know, all the ABC courses out there. Like, I have one. Mm -hmm. So it's like I'm, I'm part of it. But there's one course called uh, FRC, Functional Range Conditioning. And it's kind of like that. Like, they just go yeah. take people to end ranges and they see if they can fire their muscles. You know, it's PNF rebranded. It's a lot of things yeah. rebranded. No, nothing's new. Right. But the idea of moving through ranges of motion with control and then trying to, you know, hold end ranges and, uh, contracting both sides of the joint, that type of stuff. Like, I think that's cool. I, mm -hmm. I, I think it has merit to add some active control within your ranges of motion. Perfect. No, yeah. I think, I actually think uh, another analogy just made me think of it where maybe like an elastic band, if you've got a help, like a brand new elastic band, you stretch it, you want to make it longer. The bit where you lengthen it is kind of frayed. It's weaker. Yeah. It's like a very similar kind of concept, I imagine. And, yeah, you don't want to then load that with your usual. Um, and I guess in a big way, you just want to be as flexible and mobile as your sport allows. And like we said before, with kind of the mobility things and stuff like that, you're just the best thing for you do sometimes is just get more practice with the range of motion that you require. And I guess even doing that, people will find their positioning better and better. And they may even get better range of motion potentially with that just by practicing. For sure. There's actually... Uh... A study that showed eccentric loading gives you the, the same it actually gives you better effect from a wow. short-term range of motion perspective so they did like eccentric uh it was a hamstring stretch comparison one group just did the passive lay on your back pull your you know pull a band with your foot the other group did the same thing but with an eccentric loading of their hamstring so they contracted their hamstring as they were pulling and they had a better effect and so now it was it was you know small studies short short-term effects but go back to an RDL, Romanian deadlift, stiff like deadlift. To me, that's a better hamstring flexibility exercise than just laying on your back and passively tugging because you're getting the same range of motion, but you're also creating strength within that range of motion yeah. and connective tissue. Uh, you're, you're imparting so much more load through your connective tissues than you can passively. Mm -hmm. 
that's why we, we talk about this whole loading uh, for mobility, loaded mobility, or it's actually termed in the literature as uh, mechanotherapy. Mechanical wow. transduction, so it's like pretty cool. Yeah. I'm gonna, I, was, I joke around. I'm gonna start an online uh, school, mechanical mechanotherapy <laughs> degree, a doctorate, and something. Make it up. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, we, I posted a video, I think on um, on the social medias a, a few weeks ago. It was just a, both my feet were elevated on like a three inch block, but the middle was open, and yeah. so when I would do, and I was holding like two forty pound kettlebells. And I would do the split swap, but my knee would go lower than my feet. So it was a pretty good amount of range of motion. My front hip was, you know, front knee was up there. It was like in a deep squat. And I was going very, very slow. And I, and I posed the question, like, why isn't this mobility work? That my front hip is getting mobilized in a deep hip flexion. My back hip is, is extended. And I'm, and I'm holding, you know, 80 kilos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might have been half that. It might have been 20 in both hands, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say it's, yeah. It's just so much more load through your through your joints and connected tissues than you can impart with those passive strategies. You're, it's just much more apt to get a, an effect. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, it's the same with so much of that stuff. I, I think there's I think there's a lot to that. Now you have to balance it because you don't want your loaded quote unquote loaded mobility work to like fatigue you. So like now you have to add it into your MRV, you know, because it's <laughs> like starting to have an effect. So you have to find that balance. But that's why it just goes back to do more of the movement. And you'll gain that specific flexibility. If you want to do the splits and you want to be the best powerlifter you can be, they're not—they're kind of conflicting. It's—it's it's almost like I want to be able to run this triathlon and peak for this powerlifting meet. It, it's just you can't be the your best at both. Yeah. You're going to sacrifice something from from either one because we know, like when you go through a strength cycle, you're not a ballerina anymore. You know, your split—if you could do the splits before that strength cycle and then you don't try again until after. It's probably not going to be the same, mm-hmm. uh, but who cares if you're if that wasn't your goal? So, yeah, yeah you just can't have it both ways, and uh, there's nothing protective like we talked about about being super hypermobile. Anyway, yeah, I think that's that's perfect, and actually, I think it it relates back to like an earlier point about kind of looking towards your program, your volume dosages. Like initially, before all of this, we're assuming people have good form, kind of like use your full range of motion within your form, practice good technique that you need for your sport and that's going to go a long way um i think just to close on this final question which it may well be kind of a long question but in terms of like general everyday practices someone could do to enable themselves like a lot of people sit all day would a standing desk allow them to be probably more mobile and not worry about things so much what about posture things like that do people need to worry about how they're sitting within chairs um, have you got any kind of advice that some someone could just like implement today that might help them? Yeah, I hope so, and I hope it's a, uh, relieving to some extent. There's actually some, as far as what's good versus bad posture. There's no, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's plenty of there's plenty of studies that say that we can't. We get differing opinions. Oh, if we look at somebody and you get ten different opinions on oh good posture, bad posture, too much this, too much that. My recommendation, what it seems to be shown, is that if you just move, if you just change positions um, every 45 minutes to an hour, then you kind of undo any any bad thing that you can think of. I, I think the the study that I'm thinking of is disc height, where if you if you're in one spot, those compressive loads, and you just stay there for a prolonged period of time, 
yeah, they can have some type of an effect. Does that, is that effect lasting? No, I think we're pretty resilient as humans. But what they show that if you just get around and just change your position. So if, if you were sitting, see if you can get up and walk. You know, take a minute or two and walk around the office. Get a, get a water every hour. And I, I think that's in like people are like, yeah, it's common sense. I do that. But really, you probably don't. You probably sit there for two and three hours at a time and don't even realize it. And then by the time lunch comes around, you're like, oh, shit, <laughs> you know, sitting's terrible. But you can say the same thing about standing. If you stand for four hours straight, you do not get achy in your feet. Like it's the same. And then sitting down feels really good. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it's not so like sitting is not itself the, the devil here. I think prolonged positions cool. are are what you know, we're looking, um, not even, I guess to mitigate, but if you just, if you can just shift position, you know, sit, if you're sitting, there's got lots of options, sit, sit on one hip when that, and that's going to feel a lot better when that starts to get, uh, irrit or, you know, your leg goes numb or you get uncomfortable there, shift to the other hip, put, you know, cross one leg, cross the other leg, sit up really like exaggerate extension for a little bit. Cause that'll actually feel really good if you've been hunched over. Mm -hmm. But then after a little bit, that's going to feel like shit too. You know, and yeah. then hunching is going to feel really good. So you kind of see my point. Your body is made to be variable. And so if you just change position, you're okay. I think what happens is uh, there's there's some studies of like, you know, flexion is a disc herniation mechanism because when you take a pig spine and you bend it back and forth a thousand times, the disc fails. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that is true. But we're adaptable. Uh, and so move, our spine our bodies are meant for movement. And so don't, don't be scared of any one position or posture. Huh. Your body is seeking all of them. It's the, and it's the same with just posture as a standalone. Um, you know, pe like people talk about kyphosis as, is, as if it's a disease, a disease. I talk about like, I have Lord, I have anterior pelvic tilt. Well, so, so do I, and so do you. And then so does everybody. You probably have posterior pelvic tilt yeah. too. You know, it's just, that's just a position. So, uh, alter things a little bit, exaggerate, the extremes and then find a middle ground and that's usually like maybe your baseline and then you can do different things from there you know and and just know that it's gonna could be uncomfortable because every position is uncomfortable if you're, you're just stuck in it that's why we move around when we sleep you know intuitively our body just kind of takes care of that perfect yeah uh, that's, that's really cool and yeah it's such an easy takeaway and i think I think a lot of people are scared about sitting in certain positions. They're like, oh, I'm, my posture is so bad. I should be sitting upright and all these sort of things. So I think that, that as a takeaway is really powerful that people can start thinking about today. And actually, you touched on a small point there, and I don't know how much you know about this or you, maybe you know a lot. In terms of sleeping, is should we try and sleep in a particular way or should we just sleep how we're comfortable, I guess? In, in a way, we don't want to sleep, try and hit a position that enables us not to sleep. So, but is there yeah. anything we can do with like sleep positioning? I'll preface this by saying of all the things that we've talked about, I know this is, I know the least about this. I don't know anything, but I definitely know the least about this one. <laughs> but I, but I will say I, I completely agree with what you just said. Do not, don't. Uh, go into a sleeping position because you think it's the right position and then you can't actually get any sleep there so sleep what in the worst position whatever that is is still better than not sleeping in yeah. a position that you think is best so i, I think it really comes down to uh, individual so if, if somebody's got like low back sensitivity to let's say arching like mm -hmm. extension so they get their back gets sore when they stand um for long periods of time or when they arch their back, sleeping on your stomach is probably going to 
sensitize that a little bit more because the bed will sink and the pillow the pillow is high so you're already in that arch position so you so in that case maybe you're sleeping on your side with a pillow between your legs or you're sleeping on your back with a pillow under your knees um, or if you if, if your stomach is the only way so I don't I don't demonize positions we try to prop you in a way so if I sleep on my stomach and people are like oh my god it's terrible for your neck but I I try to sleep on my back and I just lay there for hours and I could probably acclimate myself to it yeah but I'm fine my neck doesn't hurt like you know what I mean so yeah. Uh, I'm sure that I change position without knowing. I know that I do. Uh, so in that example, if let's say your stomach is the only place that you can get uh, sleep in, maybe put a pillow underneath your hips to see if that uh, decompresses those feelings, desensitizes a little bit. So that, yeah, generally we use pillows to prop. I like uh, if you're a side sleeper and and you're also complaining of some low back or hip issues, just put a pillow between your legs, like a long pillow, so your hips are just in line. Um and then a, a, a pillow that's for your neck that's basically a height where your head can just rest in yeah. line generally is a, is a nice takeaway. Um, <clears throat> other than that, man, I like a firm mattress. Some people are the opposite. So, yeah, I think I think at the end of the day, it's whatever gives you the most sleep. Cool. No, I think that's a, that's a great takeaway. We know, I mean, everyone listening knows how important sleep is, so... Um, you don't want to trust, yeah, start messing around too much with that. Um, I think, thank you so much for everything you've kind of inputted there, taken enough of your time. And I think there's been, I mean, I've taken a lot away from today and I feel confident. I mean, sending it, I'm going to send this to my clients to be like, watch this because it kind of gives you a 101 of how we want to be organizing kind of your kind of health, joint health, all of those sort of things. Um, so I've, I've taken a lot away from this and I want to make sure people can find you, Quinn. So if they want to find you, where would you kind of direct them to? I know you've got a pretty active Instagram. Um, also, obviously, you're doing videos with Juggernaut and things like that. Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me on. That was this show was a lot of fun. I really, really oh, awesome. appreciate. Yeah. And so I guess, yeah, I'm all over uh, social media. I guess that's the one of the perks of having a, a weird, unique name is that you can just search my name and. My Instagram is Quinn.Hennick, uh, DPT, and, or, yeah, that's my Instagram, and then I have a, two Facebook pages, a coaching one and a personal one. I'm, I'm active on both. Uh, Twitter, s similar handle. My YouTube channel is, is a free. But basically, my YouTube channel is the videos that I send my athletes, nice. and I just have put it up on my YouTube. Uh, so if you kind of no, they're not they're low budget, you know, short videos or descriptions. Some of them have voiceovers, but that's you know a lot of uh, videos that that of exercises that we've talked about and uh, that I talk about are all on my YouTube channel. Perfect. And then better, some more uh, higher production quality stuff is definitely the Juggernaut. The videos that uh, that Chad has let me do on the Juggernaut YouTube channel um, has have been awesome. And just from my experience of being able to do them and talk through those things, and I've I've learned a lot just doing those videos. So. I've got several on Juggernaut's YouTube channel, Juggernaut Training Systems, and then all my blogs that I've written for Juggernaut are on their website. And uh, Clinical Athlete, social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, they have a YouTube channel as well. Cool. And then clinicalathlete.com is where the directory of healthcare providers uh, lies. Brilliant. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll make sure I link those up in the description below um, or in the show notes as well so people can get hold of those. And I know if, if you have like Quinn talked about, if you have got a like injury at the moment and you just need someone to kind of help you through with that, 
I can vouch for Quinn being excellent and just helped me get through um, an injury that was really nagging me. So I can definitely recommend kind of the consulting service that I know you provide as well. So yeah, thank you so much, Quinn. I hope everyone enjoyed this show. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Steve.